strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you live from the Calm Radio studios here in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on 8KenFM here in Alice Springs and also online at karma.com.au. Today is the start of the week. It's Monday the 15th of April 2019. My name is Carl Dowling and I'm your host for Strong Voices this morning. Well, heading on the pro- well, coming up, I should say, on the program today, uh, award-winning author uh, Bunurong Yuan and Tasmanian Aboriginal man Bruce Pascoe was recently in Alice Springs as part of the uh, Talk and Ideas section of the 2019 Pajma Festival. Bruce Pascoe did drop into the Karma Studios, and we're going to be hearing part one of a uh, three-part conversation with uh, Bruce Pascoe. Also, the federal election, which is coming up on the 18th of May, uh, has uh, seen the Australian Electoral Commission announcing their campaign to ensure as many people are enrolled and able to have their say. Also, we're going to be hearing from a author of a book that explores why white Australia can't solve black problems. We're going to be hearing from that uh, a little bit near the tail end of the show. And of course, we're going to be having the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country coming up on the show as well. Hey, this is Cathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices. I'm going to head into our first story of the day. Well, if you're familiar with the books uh, Shark, Ocean, Earth and Nightjar or Dark Emu, then you will know the name Bruce Pascoe. Aboriginal man Bruce Pascoe is an award-winning writer. He's won uh, Book of the Year and Indigenous Writers' Prize in the uh, 2016 Premier's Literacy Awards. Mr Pascoe was in Alice Springs recently as part of the Talk and Ideas section of the 2019 Pajma Festival. While he was in Alice Springs, Bruce Pascoe came into the Karma Studios and spoke with Paul Wiles. Today we're going to play the first of a uh, three-part series of conversations with Bruce Pascoe. So here's the first one now. Bruce, welcome back to Karma. Uh, lovely to be here. For those who don't know you, you're mob your country? I'm living on Yuan country. We, we've got Yuan family, we've got Bunurong family, we've got Tasmanian family. Like a lot of Aboriginal people, we've got people all up and down the coast. We got smashed our family and splintered and shoveled off here and shoveled off there, you know, and we're trying to bring as many people together again now as we can. Tell us how you grew up and your memories of well, growing up. We always lived in the bush. My father was a travelling man and I knew nothing about the Aboriginal family connection. We knew after I was about nine, you know, people in the town of Mornington where I lived, they said, oh, look, 
we don't actually know who you are, you know, you can't snob us. One lady thought I was snobbing her, you know, and uh, she said, you can't snob us, you're bloody family of us. And it didn't mean a lot to me until about three weeks later. I thought, what are you talking about, that cranky old lady? He was She was telling me off, and nine-year-old kids don't like being told off. I've never liked it. Uh, but anyway, things started to fall into place, and then my uncle told me how the connections worked and took me down to Lakes Entrance in Victoria to introduced me to fishermen down there who were Tasmanians. He said, they're your family. You know, they're from Tasmania, but they're your family too. And over a period of time, I started putting it together. And then my daughter was five and she started asking questions about family. Like, who's that old lady? I didn't even know. I just accepted this auntie. I didn't know. So I thought, you know, she's not going to stop asking questions, this little girl. I'd better find out. So that was probably 1979, 80. And I've been doing it ever since. And that's where a lot of the books come from too, is that talking to the old people, they tell you these incredible stories about your family. And you think, well, I wish I'd known that 20 years ago. You became a teacher. What was the journey into teaching? My sister and I, we would never have been able to go to university because my family didn't have any money. And Dad said to us, look, if you want to keep going with this, you're going to have to do it yourself. You're going to have to get a scholarship. And Bob Menzies was Prime Minister. People think of Bob Menzies as a... Uh, you know, real right winger, but he provided uh, university scholarships for poor families, and my sister and I got one one of them each. It was a real socialist thing that he did, and um, I didn't enjoy university very much. But my sister was pretty good. But anyway, we both became school teachers because that was how we got in. You had to commit yourself to four years of teaching, and but I loved teaching. I loved working with the kids. You know, all poor schools, and uh, when I went to Malakuta which was my last real school. Um, you know, they're all fishing families, uh, some Aboriginal families, but none of them had two bob to rub together, really. And so we got on like a house on fire and it was just like a family. What but, subjects were you teaching? I was teaching English, you know. I was a real bookish kid and um, we lived remotely all the time and there was no TV, you know, like people don't believe that, but there was no TV. And so I read books and my grandmothers, both of them, never had to think about buying a present for me. You know, it was always books and that's how I grew up. So that got me into teaching. And But my ambition was to be a writer, a storyteller, because my family were such good storytellers. That's how our family worked, through story. And I wanted to be as good as them, you know, but they didn't die, you know. They kept on hanging around and wouldn't give me a go. So I started writing stories and um, I was very proud to be able to publish stories while my aunties and uncles were still alive and my mum, of course, and my dad because they thought I was just a ratbag kid, you know, and a bloody long-haired hippie and going nowhere, you know, got a good job in education then left it, you know, that sort of misery you, you give your parents and then they saw it starting to come good. So I'm glad they did see that. I wish they wish they were around now. We'd have had a good time. Starting to learn about your family Mm. connections in Tasmania. I mean, that must have been amazing. Well, it is. And politically, Tasmania is a divided country, Um, not just black on white, but um, the various families of Aboriginal people in Tasmania. And um, people expect me to bag Michael Mansell. I'll never bag that man because he introduced me to the idea of Aboriginal sovereignty um, at a time when it was bloody illegal. So I can't forget people like that. And I think down the track we're going to have this conversation. All the Tasmanian Aboriginal families are going to have this conversation. But, yeah, well, all you mob went to Flinders Island. 
but our mob stayed on the big island. We might have snuck in on a dairy farm here and a, a pig farm there. That's how we stayed, hiding from our colour, really. You can't condemn that. That's how you survived. You know, you've got five kids. How the hell are you going to grow those kids up in Tasmania? Where there was a war going on. How are you going to do it? Any way you bloody can is the answer. You know, I can't condemn my family and I'm certainly not going to condemn anyone else's. I just want us all to come together as a people because we've only got one real enemy and that's white institutions and white history. And the joy about it is, for me, is that Australia wants to learn. Suddenly, uh, not the whole of Australia, I don't think Barnaby Joyce is there yet, but a lot of Australians want to know about their country and they are prepared to acknowledge the fact that Aboriginal people were here first. Now, that might sound like something that should have happened 200 years ago. Yes, it is, but it hasn't happened right up until this day. As part of your growth, the journey through academia, I mean, you said you got out of teaching and went to the next level. What was that next level and where did that take you? I was looking for a way where I could write more often because even when I was teaching, I was writing at night when the kids were in bed and the house was quiet. That's when I got my writing done. I also went deaf, which made classroom teaching really hard. And this is a time when hearing aids weren't very good. My whole family's deaf, so I knew what was coming. And I had a little bit of a plan in mind, and so I thought that I would go into book publishing. I started a magazine called Australian Short Stories. I was doing part-time jobs. I started out brick cleaning for the old man, but then I was doing other jobs in education. You know, I'd do a short-term job in education. I'd work in a pub. I'd do anything just to build up a wage so that I could write. I did that for 40 years and, you know, things are a lot different now. You know, people are reading Dark Image, so they're reading Convincing Ground, so they're reading Shark. And in a way, I'm pretty glad that that kind of recognition didn't come when I was 30. It's come at a time when I I know what's real and what's not and what's important in a life and what's not, uh, for which I'm grateful. It's come at a time in my life when I'm involved in the law, something I never thought would happen from down south and... We take our law from a boy who survived a massacre in Victoria, the only survivor of that massacre. And that boy was adopted by the man who conducted the massacre. Terrible psychologically for that boy. It must have been terrible. But he was a strong mind and he passed on the law to his own son and grandson and we take that law. So it's hanging by a thread because of that lad's life. But now there's 70, 80 young men with law down there. It might be a surprise for people around the Todd to think of that many people with real law, not gammon law, real law, real story, following it and absolutely true to our law. But that's what it's like. And come down, come and have a look at our country, bring a couple of jumpers with you, but come down and have a look and we'll show you our old people's law down there. It's alive. Walking in two worlds, being in the white mm. fella education mm. system and then knowing and starting to get a better acceptance from within that you, you were part of something much bigger than that. How did that make you feel and where did you want it to take you? Well, it's very confusing in many ways living in those two worlds. But, you know, the thing that disturbs me most about it is I often worry, am I the acceptable black fella? You know, I go on ABC radio, TV and all that sort of stuff and I don't want to be the acceptable face of black Australia, someone who people can get along with and don't have to worry about race. Just because I'm pale doesn't mean to say I'm not political. So that is always difficult. You know, sometimes I 
I have to um, hold my law, I stand up for my law and say, well, look, that's not the way to conduct a conversation with Aboriginal Australia. What do you want to do, a get-out-of-jail card? I'm not going to give it to you. I can't give it to you. I haven't got the authority to do that, nor would, if I did have the authority, I wouldn't want to do it. Australia has ignored Aboriginal culture and history uh, for 230 years. There's no easy way out. The only way out is to know what this country is about and to respect it. And there's no easy way. It'll be bruising. You know, the conversations we're going to have in the next 20, 30 years will be bruising because, you know, we'll be fighting incomprehension amongst each other. We don't understand you. You don't understand us. But we've got to come to this agreement. Look at Uluru, the Uluru statement. How did Australia react to that? Pathetic. So that's a a bruise on the nose where we come up against each other, black and white, boom, can't understand each other. Turnbull says, oh, too ambitious. What? What's too ambitious about that statement? It's a statement about love for country. There's no request in it. The only request is know your country, know your history. Surely, you know, that's something you'd want to do. Anyway, we're going to have those collisions with each other and there's no easy way of doing it. We have to do it the hard way, but not to do it will condemn this nation to idiocy like you see in the United States today. We can't even consider that First Nation people are the people of that land. That was uh, Bunurong Yuan and Tasmanian Aboriginal Man Award-winning writer Bruce Pascoe there speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be bringing you uh, the two other parts of that uh, three-part interview uh, throughout the rest of this week. We're also going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news very shortly, but before then we're going to go to a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hi, this is Pam from Karma, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices, and now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the studio by uh, Karma Radio's Damien Williams and Philippe Perez. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Carl. Good morning to you and Wera everywhere. Great to have you both here. Uh, a lot's happening around the country. We'll start lots. with you, Philippe. Uh, you and I were both in Tennant Creek quite some time ago in regards to uh, the former Prime Minister's visit, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. And as part of that, uh, he did mention about a Barclay regional deal. It's been quite some time. I understand there's been some updates around that. Yeah. So over the weekend, uh, Nigel Scullion, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, along with Bridget McKenzie, who's the Deputy Leader of the Nationals, along with the Northern Territory Representative, Jerry McCarthy, who is the local member for that region, and the mayor of that region, Steve Edgington, was there to announce that a De- Barclay regional deal was signed. Uh, we, this, like I said, this stemmed from the visit that Malcolm Turnbull took in response to some uh, pretty horrific incidents in regards to uh, the sexual, the alleged sexual assault of a uh, a child in the region. So. Many months later, after much discussion and talk about what's going to happen, a regional deal for the Barclay region has been signed. Uh, It will be investing $78 million from both Liberal and Nationals government at the moment. The Territory Labor government and the Barclay Regional Council will be pulling all this money in. 
and there will be what is touted here uh, in the joint media release from all those involved is that will maximise the value of new and existing public investment through greater collaboration, alignment and coordination of regional investment priorities between the three levels of government in response to community identified priorities. Now, no mention here in regards to local Aboriginal corporations. I know that there was something talked about in regards to involving um, Aboriginal groups and uh, organisations in the region. Uh, I do note as well there was no Aboriginal representative at the event when this was m- mentioned. So I don't know what to make of that. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting because when we were back in uh, Tanner Creek quite some time ago, obviously, you know, there was specific meetings allocated where they were speaking with specific Aboriginal representatives from there and the what we were hearing during the time was the importance of that Aboriginal involvement and having that leadership as well as the leadership at the other forms of government all collaborating together. So it, it will be quite interesting to see, you know, if that has eventuated and that's something that they're continuing to have as a, as a commitment as part of this. I think that there is certainly a investment in terms of trying to have... Uh, uh, delivery of services for people across the Barclay, which includes remote Aboriginal communities. Uh, it will, according to the um, uh, member for Barclay, Jerry McCarthy, he also states that the NT government initiatives, which had impacted positively on the social and economic dynamic, will be something that is worthwhile for remote communities as well. I can just tell you just a few little facts in regards to the investment here. Um, the It states here that Aboriginal peoples are key stakeholders in the deal in recognition of their ongoing connection to country as the traditional owners and custodians of the land. doesn't exactly say what involvement they are, except to say that they are key stakeholders. The Australian government will invest $45 million, uh, some of it going into a new radar, weather radar um, for Tennant Creek, uh, increasing housing supply, reducing overcrowding by building a visitor park, uh, boarding accommodation and entering into a public-private uh, partnership for new social and affordable, house, affordable housing stock. The NT government are going to contribute to this new weather radar as well for Tennant Creek, but they will also commit money to construct a new alternative to detention facilities for young people uh, and money to manage the visitor park that I mentioned earlier on as well, as well as student accommodation. Um, and the Barclay Regional Council will be investing $3 million in community project projects in their remote areas that they service as well. So uh, there's also things along the lines of big business hubs. Um, Alperulam will get an airstrip. Um, uh, the weather radar is a, a very big thing that's happened, that, that is being uh, touted as uh, something of a major winner in this Barclay Regional deal. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that are, you know, being initiated in regards to yeah. this. Culture, placemaking, social development. Um, this visitor park seems to be a central uh, initiative in regards to this regional uh, deal as well. So we'll see what it, happens. It, it will be interesting as well to see in terms of what sort of, um, you know, that the business side of it and sort of the economic growth of that because I know that was a point that the community did bring up as well in terms of that involvement and that Aboriginal involvement in that aspect as well. 
We'll go to our next story now. On to you, Damo. I understand some interesting news around uh, the A-League. Yeah, the third Sydney A-League team could bear the name of an Indigenous nation. So the the 12th team to enter the A-League could become the first to tie its identity to an Aboriginal nation um, with the MacArthur Southwest Region expansion team having registered a potential trade name that is influenced by its Indigenous people. So the Campbelltown-based club might enter the A-League in the 2020-21 season as the as Darwall Bulls Football Club. So that would be, um, you know, it's, it's not official at the moment. Um, the searches, uh, there are other, uh, the Sydney team appear to have come up with three um, of which are very, very, variations of the Aboriginal nation, which um, Campbelltown sits on uh, Darwall country. So, um, yeah, this could be pretty exciting for them. That's really interesting in that, you know, I don't think much in regards to soccer and Aboriginal communities is heard about. Like, you yeah. know, you don't hear much about, you know, the combine, combination of those kinds of uh, communities. I mean, me being a you know originally growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney, you know there is a large Aboriginal uh, engagement in in those communities, and it's, it's they're very strong out there. So I think uh, it's really cool that you know a, a sport like soccer is trying to engage more. Aboriginal people to play. Yeah, but it's interesting, you know, seeing the different regions, the different sport that that mob engage with, and uh, I, I think you know, in specific regions, like Philippe was saying, that there are a lot of mob in, engaging in the sport. Mm. And I mean, like you know, seeing this as a, uh, you know, it's one of the um, fastest growing national team um, games in the country as well. To see it incorporate Aboriginal um, places and, and stuff like that is is pretty. Pretty amazing to see, and I mean, you know, it, uh, um, football, as a lot of people call it, soccer, <laughs> is the biggest game in the world, um, and to be able to get, you know, hopefully, um, seeing that be uh, broadcasted around the world would be pretty amazing. Could you guys remind me, by the way, who's the gentleman who was uh, played for Australia, who was an Aboriginal man? Is it John Moriarty? Moriarty. Oh, I'm not sure there was a yeah. couple, but yeah. um, I'm personally not too familiar with, yeah. with soccer or, or football, however you want to put it. But yeah, yeah. but the reason why I say it is because he he ran. There's a really great foundation that's try, going out to remote communities here in the NT as well, trying to get more uh, young mob into uh, soccer. I wish I could remember his name. I, I believe yeah. it's John Moriarty or something. Like I think oh, I nice. think yeah. Um, I apologise. So and go. yeah, the the, um, the fella played in the. Uh, one of the recent World Cups, I, I believe, or um, yeah, getting into the team as well. But uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing to see that being incorporated yeah. um, into the A League. Uh, just quickly back to you, Philippe, for our final story. I understand sticking around in sport. Yeah, um, <sighs> some interesting news. Breaking news: Demo is a bit devastated from yes. this. I think uh, NRL star Greg Inglis has just announced his retirement effective immediately. Um, he's very well-known star, uh, one of the most decorated players in the NRL. He only literally in the last hour announced his immediate retirement from the game after a string of injuries and uh, some other battles in his career. Uh, He actually announced that he was planning to retire at the end of next season, 
but he met with club officials literally this morning and revealed his intentions at a press conference to retire. Um, he just thinks it's the right decision. Quote, I've been contemplating it for a while now. This is no retirement due to mental illness or injuries or anything like that. He has scored in 18 State of Origins uh, in 32 matches for Queensland and played in 39 tests for Australia. He scored a try in his NRL debut for the Melbourne Storm in 2005, went on to play uh, 263 uh, top-grade games for that club and now plays for South Sydney. And, uh, yeah, he's had quite, you know, the career. He's had really um, a lot of wonderful, glorious times representing Australia Australia and about a lot of injuries as well. Mm. Uh, You know, Mm. he he was plagued by a shoulder industry in the last season, uh, which uh, he was managing with painkilling injections, but obviously um, there's some issues with that as well and certain things that, you know, affected his career in regards to that. Yeah, really sad to see, you know, him retiring, obviously... One of my favourite players throughout the throughout watch, the years. Yeah. Hated when my team would play against him, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, playing the Rabbitohs was pretty hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, he always had a very big impact on the game, not just uh, on the field though, but also off the field. You know, being yeah. an Aboriginal leader and and being that positive role model for the mob over the years, I think has has been really great to see the different mm. positive you know messages that he'd put out there and the image that he you know put out to to wider communities as well I think is, is something that's going to continue to be felt over the years and I'm sure his involvement will, will still sort of be there out, outside of the game Yeah and you know just uh, like you said um, uh, a lot of his on-field um, things impacted uh, you know great greatly to a lot of um, kids out there as well you know seeing seeing someone like Greg Inglis uh, represent Aboriginal people um, his his mob as well I think it just sort of like um, showed a lot of other young mob out there that you, you can do what you put your mind to, you know. True. Well, on that note, Damien, Philippe, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. No worries. Kalamata. Ondrapaka wam strong voice nana newsa about Nguyen Mapa or Nguyen community or your stationing. Come radio on an 8KN FM. The federal election has been called and while politicians around the country have started their campaigns, the Australian Electoral Commission, AEC, have announced their own campaign for everyone to enrol so that you can have your say. Philippe Perez spoke to AEC's Northern Territory manager, Jeff Bloom, on what people in the Northern Territory need to know to enrol. So, yes, the election has been called and we know that uh, election day will be the 18th of May this year. So the, the first thing that uh, we need to do is uh, get as many people on the electoral roll so they can vote in this election. So the the close of rolls period, as we call it, which is a, a seven-day period uh, from today, uh, has started and enrolments will close next Thursday. So uh, And that's 8pm next Thursday. So we would encourage uh, anybody that uh, wants to be on the roll and to vote during this federal election to, uh, to go to the AC website that's www.ac.gov.au uh, and you can update your enrolment if you've moved from another location or you can enrol for the first time on the website. Now, from my understanding, at the last election, the turnout, I believe, was 70% here in the uh, seat of Lingiari, uh, which we mainly broadcast out to. 
Uh, I believe this was the lowest, if not the lowest turnout, the last election. Can you explain a little bit about some of the things that the AEC has done to try and up this rate of turnout? So, yes, you're right. The the turnout uh, is lower in the division of Lingiari. Uh, however, the AEC is uh, delivering a range of services, as we have in the past. For the 2019 election, we'll have remote mobile teams travelling throughout the Northern Territory. We have 16 teams in the division of Lingiari, uh, and those teams will visit some 200 locations, the majority of which are uh, remote communities and they'll deliver services across a two-week period in the lead-up to polling day. So uh, for any uh, of the smaller locations, if there are 10 or more people enrolled on the electoral roll, uh, the team will visit. Some of the smaller locations will receive a, a shorter visit, uh, sort of one to two hours, and up to the larger communities where the teams will be uh, uh, in those locations for up to two days. Can I ask, in regards to those visits, uh, what will staff be doing? Like, will they be talking to people within the communities or just setting up and making sure that they're known to a mob in communities out remotely? So we we communicate, uh, provide communications to the communities in advance of the arrival of the team. Uh, and uh, that uh, is through the stakeholders. We have contacts in each of the locations. We uh, send posters out uh, advising of the polling times and ask that those posters be put up at, uh, say, the health centres and and perhaps at the the store or another location where people would be able to see them, and that will alert people to the fact that the team's coming through. Uh, We also work with other government agencies and other stakeholders who... Uh, on our behalf, on the AEC's behalf, uh, spread the uh, the message uh, that the team will be coming by and it's important that uh, if you're on the electoral roll to, to go down and, and visit the, the voting team uh, and vote. Some remote communities may not easily get access to the internet to make sure people can have their enrolment details up to date. Are there any other ways that people who live remotely uh, can uh, update their update their enrolment Look, it is difficult at this late stage. Uh, the the role, uh, or to get on the role now, uh, the easiest way for people in a remote location would be to go to the AEC website. Uh, so that would require internet access. Um, so that's, uh, and I'm not sure whether people would be able to travel to, to get that sort of access, but, but certainly going online is the easiest way for people to update their enrolment. Look, you, you've hit the nail on the head in asking the question, but it does involve internet access for people to be able to, to enrol at this late stage. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it, it really means that people uh, need to have the, the impetus to, to do that. Um, sure. So um, we're, we're just hoping that more people uh, take that offer up and, um, and go online and, and enrol. Can I ask about... Um, I mean, we know that many people who live in remote communities have English as their second, third, even fourth language. What support does the AEC give in terms of uh, providing in-language services regarding enrolling? In broad terms, uh, the AEC uh, delivers a number of uh, services in language. Uh, Currently, we've developed some uh, videos which are in language across uh, 12 uh, Aboriginal languages across uh, Northern Territory. Uh, And those those videos are around how to vote in election, the voting process itself, including how to vote formally, and also uh, why it's important to participate. We are distributing those... uh, 
links through some of our stakeholders and communities. Um, they're also available at the AC website and on the AC YouTube channel. Um, so that the social media videos, as we're calling them, uh, the remote polling teams will also have uh, the formality uh, DVDs they'll be playing in the polling places. So that'll inform people at the polling place on how they will be able to cast a formal vote. Uh, and in some locations, we'll have voter information officers who will be local people who will be employed to uh, assist people to vote at the polling places in community. Are there underrepresented people on the territory on the roll at the moment, in your eyes? Uh, are people like young people and Aboriginal people underrepresented? Look, it is true to say that there are uh, not as many uh, Indigenous uh, Territorians on the roll as we'd like. Currently, uh, the, the latest data that we have, which was from June of 2018, tells us that there are approximately 67% uh, of eligible Indigenous Territorians on the roll. Now, that number is perhaps a little bit higher than we, we thought. Anecdotally, we, we thought that that might be a little bit less, but, but that's our starting point. Uh, we would have added a number of uh, additional people since uh, June of 2018, but it is right that, that uh, we would like to see a lot more Indigenous Territorians on the electoral roll. Of course, enrolling is one thing. Having people go out and vote is another. Uh, can I ask, obviously, you've talked about people going out to um, remote communities and setting up polling places in the two weeks leading up to the election. What efforts are you undertaking to ensure maybe you know people go to vote on the 18th of May? Uh, so the services that we deliver to communities are part of our mobile polling service which is uh, during that that two-week period so uh, we uh, we don't offer what we call a, a static polling service which is an on the on the day polling service uh, typically to to communities and nor do we with with other locations including hospitals and aged care centres and so forth but uh, so the opportunity to vote will be through the remote polling teams during that two-week period in the lead-up to polling day. Okay. Uh, are you able to confirm locations of polling places in the electorate of Lingiari at the present moment? So the remote polling schedule will be available uh, on the website. We're, we're just fine-tuning uh, now that the, the writs have been issued and the announcement's been made as to when polling day will occur. We're, we're doing some final work on the remote polling schedule and we'll have that available on the website so people will be able to view that in the next uh, few days. So 200 locations in total. Uh, the vast majority are, are uh, communities, but there's just a small number of, of uh aged care centres and, and a couple of hospitals in there as well. Is, is, is something like that very challenging to undertake, particularly in such a short time frame, especially, you know, over the span of five weeks? It, it is a very big logistical challenge. Um, the teams operate from Alice Springs, uh, out of Tennant Creek, Catherine, uh, Darwin and Nulamboy. So for us to uh, have all of the people that we, we have, including our staff from Department of Human Services, um, we have a partnership with Department of Human Services and they provide some of their staff and some of their four-wheel drive vehicles. Um, so it is a very difficult uh, undertaking, but uh, we've done this a, a number of times uh, and again through that partnership with DHS. So uh, we are getting better at it, but it is still very, very challenging and our team are working very hard to, uh, to get the teams into the field. Well, Jeff, we'll keep an eye out on those videos that you speak of that, uh, earlier in this interview in regarding uh, encouraging and supporting Aboriginal people uh, to, to go out and vote. So we'll probably have a yarn with you between now and polling day as well uh, to talk about, you know, what's been going on, maybe, you know, talk about 
um, you know, some of the things that people can do in regards to making sure their vote counts. So I appreciate you giving us your time, Jeff. Thanks, Philippe. The- that was the Australian Electoral Commission uh, Northern Territory Manager Jeff uh, Bloom there speaking to Karma's Philippe Perez. The AEC have created Indigenous language videos which have been uh, translated to 12 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages, including several in Central Australia, to support uh, electoral participation in remote communities in the Northern Territory for the upcoming federal election. The videos explain in language how to enrol how to vote and also how to gain employment with the AEC during the federal election. You can watch those videos at www.aec.gov.au forward slash indigenous. Hey mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. You're listening to Strong Voices and we're going to head into our final story of the show now. Colonial Fantasy is a book by Sarah Madison which looks at why white Australia can't solve black problems and in some circumstances is actually creating more problems in Aboriginal communities. The Wire recently spoke to Sarah Madison. The Wire's Annabel McKinnon files this report. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia, colonisation has been an unmitigated disaster and we need to let go of the fantasy that we can in some way tweak it or fix it or develop the right policy or change the government or or in some other way tweak the settler colonial system in a way that's going to change that situation and we instead need to be looking to the revitalisation and the resurgence of Indigenous clans and nations that's already underway around the country. We need to be um, supporting Indigenous autonomy and decentering the state from any idea we have about how um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's lives can improve. What factors are getting worse for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? You name them, really. I mean, we have the annual Closing the Gap report from the Prime Minister, which shows that despite 10 years now of significant investment in those uh, areas of of policy reform associated with with education and with with health, we're really not making any progress as a nation. The incarceration rates of Indigenous peoples are still going up 10 years or 11 years now after the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. It is an absolute fantasy to suggest that settler society is is benign or is benevolent or can in some way be made better for Indigenous peoples. We need to get out of their way. If the government isn't fixing these growing issues, how can we change as a society? It is going to be the the work of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to, to turn their fortunes around, as we've seen with First Nations in in other settler colonies. Once they are able to regain some economic or financial autonomy and take control of, of policy areas like education and health, there is a genuine transformation underway in a lot of First Nations. Australia is relentlessly going in the opposite direction, becoming increasingly and continuously paternalistic, intervening into Indigenous lives in ways that are profoundly damaging. And, you know, the solution is, as I argue in the book, for white Australia to recognise that we are the problem, not Aboriginal people, and to get out of the way to focus on supporting what Indigenous peoples are saying are their solutions to these problems rather than always thinking that we know best. On that note, how do you feel about white commentary on Aboriginal issues, for example, the change the date debate that circulates every year? 
well, racism is a major issue for Aboriginal people and people like Kerri-Anne Kennelly, who were quite rightly called out for being racist on national television, do do harm. And there is a role for allies and accomplices in Indigenous struggles like Yumi, who called out Kerri-Anne on television, or like me in writing a book, you know, recognising that I have a whole lot of white privilege that allows me to say these things to other white Australians in a way that shouldn't always be the burden of Indigenous people. White people have got work to do. It's probably not the work that a lot of white people think they have to do, but we do have work to do. And, you know, it shouldn't be the responsibility, it shouldn't be the labour of Aboriginal people to have to counter ignorance and and racism. How do you think we can encourage or start the conversation for white people to actually check their privilege and check how lucky they are to not be in these circumstances that we've put Aboriginal people into? Look, there's this whole amazing thing called the internet. And when (laughs) when people come to me and say, oh, I don't know what to do and I don't know where to start, you know, start by Googling white privilege. Actually read about what it is. Think about how that plays out in your life. Start by doing some reading. I guess I'm a bit old school. Maybe that's because I'm a university professor. (laughs) But, you know, do some reading. Go to the library. Read some more about the history of this country. First Nations around Australia are already engaged in these projects. They are already engaged in processes of cultural resurgence and political resurgence. Get to know your local Aboriginal community wherever you are. Look at the work that they're doing and then think about how you can support that because that is a radical act. If you are supporting Indigenous peoples to become more independent, more autonomous, to be managing their own lives and making their own decisions, then that is radical change in action and it doesn't have to be at this large-scale national level to be effective. That was uh, author of Colonial Fantasy, Sarah Madison, ending that report from The Wise, Annabel McKinnon. And that's going to conclude Strong Voices for this uh, Monday. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program and all the stories we've been playing for you today. If you missed any of them or wanted to listen back to the program, we'll be posting a podcast of Strong Voices up on the Karma webpage uh, later this afternoon. That's www.karma, that's au. We'll be back the same time tomorrow from uh, 11 to 12. Stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Strong voices. Gita Ilkertan.